Well, good morning. Good morning. Thanks for wanting to be here. Um, let's put it up first in terms of maybe there's something of interest that you have. And so let's see that before I just ramble on on anything that's in my head. You're putting us on the spot. Yes, correct. <laughs> Questions and answers satsang requires a question. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Any question? I usually like what's popping up in your head. So I don't have any question. Oh, okay, right okay. So, yeah. So, I need to listen. Okay. <laughs> There's one question that always pops into my head with the physical practice. Yeah. And it's to differentiate between I should have this daily practice and also I should listen to my body and I feel tired. Should I really do the whole sequence? Like, it, it, I find it always hard to tell how far I should push. That's a good point. Mm -hmm. The feeling of being tired is normal. Mm. And part of it is physical tiredness and part of it is just mental boredom. <laughs> because <laughs> it's the same practice and so getting up and trying to do it again is a certain mental boredom that you're facing um, practice requires a recognition of why am I doing this practice mm -hmm. right if I'm practicing because I think I'm going to get healthier younger stronger then at some point you're going to get disappointed <laughs> because you're not going to get younger and you will get weaker and you won't be able to do stuff that you could have done before. Mm -hmm. And so having the capacity of recognizing that we're doing this practice for something deeper than that, maybe we started there, but then hopefully we kind of found a path towards appreciating that there is something deeper here. And usually in this context of Ashtanga, the context would be, where did that word come from? So we would end up searching, where did the word Ashtanga come from? And we would end up with Patanjali's Yoga Sutras. And Patanjali is very clear, very quickly, about what practice is, going back to the answer. Practice is not doing the asanas. Practice is the effort to remember who we really are. Mm -hmm. And so who I am is a question I can ask, and then I could do that without doing asana practice, like a man named Ramana Maharshi encouraged his practitioners a lot. Just ask, just have that question in your head all day. Who am I? Who am I? <laughs> right? And then you'll notice that you don't want to keep that question. It's like, oh, I'm hungry. <laughs> what should I eat now? <laughs> or I have to go to work. So I have to think about work. 
So that's one element, right? And so then we come on the mat. And so the idea of the yoga mat in this way is the opportunity to shift my thinking brain. David Swenson, one of my teachers and someone who maybe you heard about. So David Swenson talks about, you know, sometimes practice is just taking the mat from the shelf, spreading it on the floor, and then rolling it back up and putting it back on the shelf. <laughs> That's good practice, <laughs> right? Sometimes practice is just Surya Namaskara 8. How to know is through listening to yourself. And the idea there is the mind will come in. I have to do more. <laughs> and then that's a good opportunity to ask ourselves, is that who I am? Right? If you can do more, then why not do more? Right? But if you're doing more because it feels that you have to, then maybe in the beginning it's a good tool to help stay regular. But if you've done it for 20 years, then the nature of time would have already shown you, it's like, oh, wait, why am I being egocentric today? I should rest, right? Mind. And then sometimes body. Like, I'll have days where it's like, ooh, whoop, yeah, no, I, we're not, we don't want to do more. <laughs> yes, I could push my body for more, and then I'll deal with the consequences of that <laughs> for the rest of the day. <laughs> you know, whether I have some tension, maybe I'll be fatigued. And so the hope of 20-year practice is that I would have learned that already. That, oh, look, I did push myself yesterday because I thought I had to finish. <laughs> but then I was tired the whole day. Mm. And so what was the point of that? <laughs> and then so it's a 20-year practice. It's like, oh, wait, my body's showing me. Right? The way to monitor how your body is showing you is where is your breathing? So we go from Patanjali's mind questioning, who am I, to practical elements of the practice. This practice isn't about the pose. This practice is about the breathing. Is my breathing staying there? And as long as I can keep my breath well, and avoid that egocentric voice, then maybe I keep going. But maybe, oh, my breath feels enough today. Enough. And so I take Shavasana. And then you don't have the residue of that weird voice in the head that says, you did not do the whole practice. <laughs> right? A good example with Ashtanga is that the physical practice has all these series. And so there's an idea in the beginning, which is more like a carrot in front of the horse. Got all these series so that you actually get up and do it. Right? But let's assume, let's presume, let's presume that you completed all the series. You pushed yourself, you fought yourself, and you did all the series. Now you've done. Then you're going to wake up the next day and wonder, okay, well now what? Maybe now, maybe now that that part of you that was needing to complete something else, that idea that I had to push and get all six series through, so now that I have all six series, maybe now I'll get up onto my yoga mat and really appreciate, oh, 
I have an inhale. Let's enjoy that. And then I have an exhale. And let's live with that. And then all of a sudden, I won't be thinking so much about what comes next, but rather what is here now. And I'll be able to be in the now. And then maybe I'll realize, oh, I guess I was actually tired since I pushed myself to get all six series so quickly. And my body is happy after sun citation A. Let's take Shavasana. <laughs> and I won't have the voice because I already knew I finished the series. So the ego voice is gone. And the moment voice took over. The real voice, like, hey, we, we are here. This is who we are. And right now we're happy with just sun citation A. We're in the moment. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Does that make sense to everyone? Right. Which was nice for you today. Where it was like, oh, I have some pain today. I'm going to listen to my body. And I'll modify as I see my breath and my body see fit. And then it doesn't matter what the practice looks like. It just mattered that I had the opportunity to be in the moment with my breath. And yes, the poses have a tool. I mean, I still have a body, right? And I have to use this body. And so why not help the body? And then from that angle, asana practice is like food. It's a refuel, right? And so I'm listening to what food is good for me. As I pointed out, that maybe I should take a break from food detox, right? So that I appreciate the benefits that I can gain by facing the idea that I don't have to eat so much, especially in our lives today where food is so prevalent and you can get whatever you want at any time you want, wherever you want, at the multitudes that you want. <laughs> and the body itself doesn't need that much, right? But we won't know how much the body needs until we give it the opportunity to face it. So within the yoga practice, there is already, right? So once you go to the philosophy, so we got philosophy down, who am I? Great. But then within that, there's that awareness of like, okay, well, what do I really need in order to nourish this body so that it works better with me, right? And then we go from the philosophy to the asana to lifestyle, right? And then some people might say, well, a yogi only lives in fruits and milk, like one yogi did. Well, good for you. I'm glad that you lived on fruits and milk. You know, I don't like milk, so that's not going to happen for me, <laughs> right? So then I have to find out what is nourishing for me. And that is also a practice. Now, I'm also a health coach and a nutrition coach, so I have the opportunity of just sharing perspectives from that angle on the idea that the school that I went to champions the idea that the food that I'm going to put into my mouth is actually secondary. It's not the most important. It's not what really nourishes my existence. You can remember moments in your lives 
that you're very happy. You're very excited. You go out like here, you're on vacation or you go on vacation with friends or when you were a child and you're out in the field and you're playing games and then suddenly your mother or father screams, it's dinner time and you're like, I'm not hungry. Leave me alone. I'm happy. I'm playing with my friends. I'm out here. And so the things that really nourish us tend to be different than the food that I eat. But obviously I need to eat some food. But the food that we're going to eat as we develop and age changes. And most of us never pay attention to that. That what I ate when I was a child isn't what I'm eating now. And depending on how mature you are in the years in your body, you would have noticed that I don't eat the way I did in my 20s. And my father who's in his 70s doesn't even eat the same way and he was in his 50s. You know, maybe his wife and my younger brother and sister that live with him more are surprised by the food that he eats now. But he, well, he notices, well, this is what I feel like I should eat now. And for me, when I speak to him, it's like, awesome, you're paying attention. They're still living with the idea that you have to eat this much because you used to eat that much before. Which is a society way of how we deal with food in our world today. Less about the same idea that we just mentioned about asana and the same that we mentioned about the philosophy. Who am I? I know. <laughs> Who knows? I know. How do I know? Because I'm listening. So I know that this is how much I want to eat now. You think I should have eaten more because I used to eat that. Or you believe I'm supposed to eat like this because of some weird idea that you read in a book. <laughs> but I'm listening to my body. And I'm feeling that this is how much I should eat now. And this is what I should eat now. But we don't have a good barometer most of the time. Hence detox is a good tool. Detox is a way of eliminating or completely eliminating chewing for a period of time so that when you come back to chewing again you'll be more attentive and that's a real trick so I work with people who do detoxes a lot and it's very difficult because we come back and we have habits and we're addicted to flavors <laughs> and so it's not that I'm eating because I need to eat that I'm eating because oh it tasted so good <laughs> and I just want to keep eating that and then if you pay attention, and especially after detox, I help people. I'm like, if you really pay attention, then eat what you want to eat. I don't have a problem. But then notice, do you feel as good as you did after the meal compared to yesterday where you ate nothing? And the first three days are hard, but if you go longer, you'll realize it's like, oh my God, I really don't need to eat. What a false idea people put in my life. <laughs> At some point, you'll have to start eating. But you can go a long time with no food. Right? Which is a surprise. Not only can you go a long time with no food, you'll realize after about four days that you have a lot of energy. <laughs> and that you feel good. And that you feel light. And you feel clear. And so we only go back to that idea that, look, I did not eat for five days. And now I ate lunch. At the end of lunch, 
do I feel as energetic, clear-headed, and good? If you do, what you ate for lunch was good for you. But if you feel lethargic, heavy, want to puke, <laughs> want to take some Tums because you have heartburn, then obviously what you ate was not good, <laughs> regardless of the pharmaceutical companies selling you Tums. Does that make sense? Right? See how the cycle, all of them go together. And Ashtanga helps us to learn it through the body and hopes that I might learn these other things about food and about philosophy over time. And you do. Because to get up at 6, so whenever you're getting up, we practice at 7.30 here. In India, I was practicing at 6 in the morning. To get up at 6 in the morning, well, enjoy having dinner at 10 and enjoy having a big meal like my dad used to have when I was a kid. And then notice how you feel at 6 in the morning. <laughs> and then you'll know the next day, I'm not eating at 10. <laughs> because I want to get up at 6. <laughs> and yesterday, I got up at 6. And I had to go to the bathroom multiple times. And I was feeling very heavy and nauseous. And I want to do the practice. So there's something interesting about doing practice. That affects the rest of your lifestyle. Does that make sense? Does that help? Can you see this interesting relationship between one to the other? Okay. Other thoughts or questions? It's tricky, this question of who am I? And one has to enjoy the process of the fact that it's going to reveal itself slowly as it reveals itself already for you when you're choosing to notice. Choosing to notice is in the moments where you really are trying to be in the moment and not inside yourself. And in vacations and in areas like these and the stories I hear from you all, I go for a walk here, or I go work with the dogs. These things that put you out of being inward, that we tend to fall into in a routine lifestyle that we might have with work and family and such. And there are moments when, like yesterday, I heard some of you went on a walk on the fields. I'm sure there was a moment when you were walking in the fields that you were just stunned by the beauty around you. And in that moment, there was an awareness of you. You may or may not have noticed it, but in that moment of just noticing the beauty that you are part of, you become aware of the fact that I am part of something. So why is it important to ask who am I then? Because that's quite an ego question to me. In the beginning. Yeah, because... One second. The ego question would mean that the answer you gave came from there. The question itself is just a question. The ego comes along by trying to say, provide the answer. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> right. Yeah. The circus was in town 
But at the end of their time in the village, when they were about to go to the next village, the zebra fell sick. So the circus owner found a nice farm to put the zebra so that he could get better. In the morning, the zebra woke up and started walking around. It saw a chicken. Didn't know what it was, so it went up to the chicken. Said, good morning, I'm a zebra. What are you? And the chicken said, I'm a chicken. And the zebra said, well, what do you do? And the chicken said, I eat grains and I give eggs. Satisfied, the zebra kept walking. Saw a cow. Went over to the cow. Said, good morning. I'm a zebra. What are you? And the cow said, I'm a cow. And what do you do? And the cow said, well, I eat grass and I give milk. Zebra happy, keeps walking. On top of the hill, it saw a weird animal with some horns. Walked up to the hill, went over to the bull and said, Good morning, I'm a zebra. What are you? And the bull said, I'm a bull. And the zebra said, Well, what do you do? And the bull said, Why don't you take off your pajamas and I will show you. <laughs> The world of the animals and the plants and the rocks doesn't face the same questions that we can have as a human being. The human experience in that way is an opportunity. It's a gift to realize that there's something deeper than us. Right? The cow, the tree, the dog, they're not confused about who they are. But the average person, I ask, who am I? I'm Gabriel. Well, no, that's the name someone gave you. Who are you really? Right? Oh, I am a woodworker. Well, no, that's what you do. Who are you really? And as you go down through that questioning, there'll come a point of recognition that there's an awareness that you can have that technically I am something that is the large aspect. Through this form, I can recognize that I am the formless that lives in all. Mm. Hence the yoga side. Mm. Hence why Patanjali starts his yoga sutras in a very simple manner. Atha yoga nushasanam. Yoga begins in the now. Going back to what we said about practice. Now that I finished the six series, I thought I was in the now. I thought I was, but technically you keep chasing the series. So you're not really here now because you're just worried, how am I going to get to the sixth series? <laughs> so you finished. So now, when you get on the mat and you inhale, you're not thinking about, because you finished. So now maybe the opportunity of inhaling and being in the now. Most of us are not in the now. We tend to be in the next moment or in the past. But we're not just here now. Atha Yoga Nushasanam. Yoga begins in the now. If I'm ready to be here now, then yoga can open itself. And then Patanjali says, Yoga Chitta Vritti Nirodaha. 
Yoga is helping to quiet this turnings of the mind. So the question is designed to trigger the turnings of the mind, not so that I look for the answer, but rather so that I discover what Patanjali next says. When the turnings of the minds are slowed down, then you know who you are. Or in a direct translation, then the seer, that which really is watching, rests in yourself. I mentioned a teacher the other day, I'll say him again, a man named David Ada, who's helped me with a lot of vocabulary. It's just his ability to use words that cut through confusion is a little bit nicer. And I take. Words are always learnt. If you've never heard something, you'll never know it. It's not just going to come naturally. The awareness of who you are can come naturally, as happened to Ramana Maharshi. Ramana Maharshi at the age of 16 lies down and says, well, one day I'll die. Might as well die now. And enters in his words, death and recognized in that state that, oh, I'm not this physical form, I thought. And life and death has no meaning. I am something else. Not only was that awareness available for him, it was then the only experience that he chose to live through. So he wasn't living through a physical form, but rather the physical form was expressing that. Which is why so many people wanted to be around him. When they were around him, they just felt that they were in the presence of something that they could touch, that they've heard about, especially in India where these words are more accessible. Does that make sense, this idea? Yeah. I think that what you just said about words is also really interesting because I think there's a lot of philosophy that can sometimes only be expressed in certain languages because other languages are missing the words. Correct. That's why Sanskrit is such... Notice we said the words from Sanskrit and Sanskrit itself is much richer compared to the English. Right? Even the word chitta, we don't have a good way to say it. Right? Some, some translation will say chitta is thoughts. But it doesn't mean just your thinking. It does mean the fluctuation of your subtle body. Subtle body is the body you have inside, the dream body of yours. And that dream body is made of thoughts and emotions. Right? If you're, dream, if you're, if you're asleep, you can have thoughts, but you can also have deep emotions. Sometimes the emotion of fear will wake you up. Right? Or sometimes the emotion of pleasure and you'll have a wet dream. <laughs> right? And so the context of going back to who am I and use of words that I take from David Ada, my teacher. When you look in the mirror, when you look in the mirror, there's a reflection, right? Now when you're young, there's a certain reflection you see. Now when you look in the mirror, you always know who you are, right? A sense of who you are. There's a sense of awareness that that's me when you look in the mirror. Is that correct? You don't look in the mirror, you can't see it. Or you can look in the lake. But you're going to look and you're going to get a sense of yourself. You're looking at 
yourself. You use words to define that as my body. I am this body. Or I am this name that people are calling me. Correct? So when you first get an awareness of that, because you don't really get that awareness for a while. Two, three, four years. A one-year-old, a two-year-old, they don't have the same sense of I-ness as they will develop at the age of three, four, or five. That makes sense? Maybe you've had kids and you noticed that. You know, today we've had enough psychological experiments to see how children who can start being active, two, two and a half, if you put them together with other kids, there's not the same sense as if you put them as four or five-year-olds where they begin to be more separate individuals in the same group setting. Does that make sense? So you don't really develop this weirdness of I-ness for a while. But once you develop that, you look in the mirror and you can see, oh, that's me. Whatever name my parents gave me. Right? So let's say that's six-year-old. But then you're 12. And your body's different. And your mind is different. And yet there's still the same quality of I-ness when you look in the mirror. Does that make sense? Right? And then again, when you get older, and as you get older and as you get older, your body will change. Your awareness, mental and emotional awareness of the world around you is different. And yet there's a part there that is still exactly the same. Is that correct? That part that is always the same is the same in all of us. But we don't rest in it. We don't tend to rest in that awareness of, oh, that is still me. The same me that was when I was a child and a teenager and a young adult and an aging adult. We don't operate from that awareness of I-ness. Does that make sense? Right? See the practicality of that? When you choose to tap into that one, then you are not so self-engrossed anymore. You become aware that that I-ness is the same as everyone else. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So again, going back to Sanskrit being richer... The Gayatri Mantra, which is a mantra that is associated with the Vedas. The first four elements of teachings, the knowledge, the Vedas, are very dry. They're like a manual. And if you buy a new microwave and never used it, there's a manual there. And you read it and it's pretty dry. But once you know how to use the microwave, you explain to your friends, not in the same words that the manual did. <laughs> right? So the Vedas are like that. And they're a manual for you to know who you are, to have an awareness of what you are. We tend to think of the Vedas as masculine, but they have a feminine side. And the feminine side is expressed through the Gayatri Mantra, which is the equivalent of that. They go together. In India, the Gayatri Mantra is considered to be very secret. Like a secret chant, like knowing it is, is knowing a very valuable knowledge. 
the chant in Sanskrit goes Om Burbaha Swaha Tatsaviturvarenyam Bargo Devasyadimahi Diyohoyona Prachodayat So these are the words of the Gayatri Mantra in Sanskrit. But in English, they could be translated into this. Of heaven above and earth below and everything that's in between. I see a fire and it's burning inside of me. When I look at the flame, I recognize that that's light. And suddenly I become aware that it is the same light that shines in everything. Does that make sense? Still recognizes that there's a sense of separateness. The body is separate than your body. And yet, I have an opportunity of realizing the oneness which the Vedas talk about. And the Gayatri Mantra expresses in a more poetic format. On the same token, the word Namaste, which we like to use so often. And you can have many variations and definitions to the word, right? But let's get an idea what does the word mean to you? We had this a week ago. So rather than trying to remember the definition, we'll come to that. But what does it mean to you? Take the definition rather than use the words for definition, but what does the definition mean to you? It's to recognize the other one, and, but not only as an individual, but also saying that we're connected. There you go. So, so, for, so that aspects of connectedness mm-hmm. still rises in your way of understanding whatever the definition was, right? So the connectedness. I, I think it's for me. It's the good in me. See the good in you. There you go. So yeah. then, yeah. so then we're going again. We're 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 choosing to go in and see something mm-hmm. and see the same in the other one. Mm-hmm. Well, I've always thought it was like a greeting. So yeah, I guess it's like connectedness. So the Hindi language uses namaskara as a way of saying hello. Very correct. Okay. But the word itself came from the Sanskrit tradition mm-hmm. and has has a has a has a little bit more in it. Okay. And even the greeting, once we get the definition, the greeting of it is still the same greeting. I'm trying to greet the good in you. I'm trying to greet the connected part in us. So it's very a little more richer than just hello. <laughs> right? Hi <laughs> Same idea in terms of what you were saying. It's a greeting. So I'm, if I have another language, for us it's English right now. And oh, I'm greeting you. Hi. Hello. Right? Namaste. Okay, namaste. <laughs> greeting. Oh. I know only Estonian. <laughs> it's okay. I don't know. What what is it for you? What is when you when you think of Namaste? What what do you think about? What is it? Is it hello? Is it a connection? Is it I see your goodness? I see my goodness. Thankful, gratitude. So gratitude. 
See, so all of these are beautiful expressions and they're all valuable. But in its core, namaste being once a few sounds in Sanskrit follows into a lot more words in English, which will encompass a lot of the things you said, but here is how its definition is. There is a place of love, of light, of truth, and of peace. Such a place exists. Is not nice. In a world, in a world that this world is a world of violence. This is not a world of peace. You did not come here peacefully, by the way. Ask your mother. <laughs> yes, you provide a great joy, but the process of you coming out was not peaceful. <laughs> Neither mine. You know? So this world is not by nature peaceful. So the, but there is a place of peace and of joy and of light and of truth. It exists. And the idea is that when you find it, when you find it inside of you, which is very interesting because we tend to try to find it out there. But I got to go in here. So I got to look for that place of light and of truth and of peace inside of me. So I'm going to do that work. If, if I find that place inside of me and you find that place inside of you, then there's only one of us. That make sense this way of defining namaste? How does that make you feel when we think of namaste in that way? That I got to find the, my place of peace inside. And then hopefully you're doing your work. And now when we come together, because you did your work and I did my work, we greet each other because we are one. Separate, but one. How does that resonate? What does that bring out for you guys, ladies? For me, it's the same that I feel about it, actually. Right. When I say that the good in me see the good in you, it's, right. for me, it's the same. Correct, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Because uh, if I have found the things in myself, the light and joy and everything, I'll see the same in you. Right. But it also helps us to come to that other. Who am I, really? Mm. Right? Yeah. So it's not, I'm good and, I, and you're good, great. Mm. But rather, wow, I found my good, you found your good because, and now really I can look at you and realize that, wow, we are in the same, we're the same. Same as I can see the same in the tree, in a rock. And suddenly I have an opportunity in this world of violence and tension to experience this experience of magic that is offered through this dilemma of life and death <laughs> and then we rise up beyond life and death as we saw in the conversation about the Bhagavad Gita why do they talk about war and death so that I recognize not just that I gotta look for goodness in a person right sometimes there's no goodness in the person but it doesn't mean that we're not one and we will come to oneness even if I have to destroy you 
or get destroyed by you. It's quite powerful because it means that we have the power to make to bring more love and to bring more peace and we can make the change. Exactly. It's extremely powerful. Extremely powerful. Yeah. Correct. And, and we have some responsibility. Right. And the responsibility, the practice that requires some sort of an action. And that action is practice. Right? Because if I just remembered who I was, that which I am expresses itself, then I'm, I'm giving you that. I have nothing. I don't need anything. I'm just trying to show you because I noticed that you are living in confusion. Ramana Maharshi who just is like, okay, you guys, you guys are coming here because you all seem to feel lacking and somehow feel that through me you're gaining it. Not material wealth, but something different, which we have more of appreciation in India that we do in other parts of the world. And that's why people hung out around him and communicated. That's why we talk about enlightened beings even the Buddha which we have a statue over there the same is like well I'm only trying to be here as an expression of what you are also and now I'm not necessarily looking for anything specific in you I'm just trying to invite that consciousness of oneness that is yours to come out and right, how will I do that? How will I be able to show that to others? By doing something that brings it out in me. I got to find that place of love and of light. Right? I have to do that. And so all of a sudden we have new words for the definition of who am I. Right? All of a sudden I won't say, ooh, who am I? Oh, I'm not Gabriel. Ooh, wait, I just heard someone say a definition about Namaste. Of peace and love and light and truth. I guess I am that. You know? And then maybe I'll start being more honest about when I catch myself. Being less honest to myself. Like, I can't do it. Why? Who said you can't? <laughs> right? And again, asana practice like ashtanga gives us the opportunity of facing the judgmental thinking that we have about ourselves. Right? If I can't do the pose, oh, I'm not good enough. I'm like, who said that? Right? How will you love yourself through doing that? How will you find the truth? Of, so especially in Ashtanga, when, we, when I say, and I'm taking the words of my teacher, Tim Miller, who points out, I'm only going to do my best to show you how to do the practice efficiently. So if I showed you how to do the practice efficiently, then when you practice, you can know when you're being truthful or not. Because either I was doing it efficiently or I was not paying attention. Does that make sense? And we can notice when we're not paying attention. So some of you in this week, all I was doing was like, look, you're doing it, but you're not really paying attention. You're just kind of doing it. <laughs> so let's slow down for a moment <laughs> and really do it. So that in that moment, we'd be more congruent. Congruent means truthful. Right? That makes sense to relate the practice, going back to 
I'm doing the asana, great, and I'm being truthful. Well, that's it today. I'm truth to myself. <laughs> not, I have to do it. Who said you have to do it? That's not truth. Truth is not in finishing six series. Truth is in inhaling and doing the work of that inhale. But what is going on with that inhale? Right? Do I know what movement belongs to that inhale? Or do I not? And I just did a movement. Like the chakrasana. <laughs> right? Chakrasana has a breath with it. Has a certain way that the breath will work with the body. As opposed to, oh my God, I got to roll backwards over my head. Which is very freaky. And I, we see it a lot as teachers. And then people just try to get through it. Right? Or beginners, when they go to Chaturanga Dandasana, it's like, dude, you, you just kind of held your breath there because it's hard <laughs> for beginners. It's like, okay, I understand that it's challenging. Let's breathe. And then they develop that space of congruency, honesty. And how will they take that with them to the rest of their days? Which then relates back to how asana, pranayama, Pratyahara, Dharana, these four that we practice on the mat every day slowly spill outward and all of a sudden you'll discover that you are being more satya, truthful out there in the world. Not that you're not lying, but you'll start becoming aware when you are having these weird white lies both to yourself internally or to others, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> And, and sometimes they're needed because Patanjali also points out there's two sentences on, on truth. When you speak the truth, when, you're, when your life is filled with truth. So it's not when you speak the truth. It's that when you're immersed in truth, whatever you say happens. Hold on, say that again. When your life is immersed in truth, mm -hmm. whatever you say happens. Okay, so I'll, I'll, I'll just be materialistic. Yeah. If you really lived life truthfully, and that's tricky because there's outward truth, what I say to others, but then there's an inward truth. Mm -hmm. But if you really lived life truthfully and said, I'm going to make a million dollars, then that will happen. That's what that means, literally. <laughs> he means literally, meaning he, Patanjali recognizes that I'm still going to have a body living in this world. So whatever you want will happen. Right. <laughs> exactly. Meaning Patanjali's words are big. Yeah. And hence why, like a book called The Autobiography of a Yogi by Ram Pramahansha Yogananda has these various stories on these people that have these powers in our minds. Right. Or I'll give you a story that I know from a man named Neem Karuli Baba was the inspirational teacher for a man named Ramdas or Krishnadas. So if you know those two names, if you've see if you heard of these two people, Ramdas and Krishnadas, well they're just devotees of this other being, mm -hmm. Neem Karuli Baba. And there's a story about Neem Karuli Baba kind of traveling and then meeting another Practitioner, someone who thinks he's enlightened, presents himself to the world as 
as a master. And so they're sitting by the fire. And, you know, these sadhus, sadhus, they don't really have a lot of money. They don't, supposedly don't need a lot of money. And so he's sitting with his sadhu. And for whatever reason, Neem Kauri Baba gets in a, a feeling. And so he sees his pouch. And he grabs his pouch and takes out all the rupees in there and throws in the flame. And now the sadhu is shocked. It's like, dude, that was all my money. What are you doing? I'm going to eat. You just took all my money. And Neem Kauri Baba calmly points out to him, Oh, you thought you were so spiritual. But look, look at how deeply connected you are to this materialism. And then slowly he started to pluck out of the flame rupees and stuffed them back into his pouch and gave him the rupees he had burnt. Whether it's true or not, I got also, many... Is it a true story? <laughs> many, uh, yeah, again, that's the... Yes, I mean, from the people, the, the sadhu that told the story... And I got lots of other stories around Neem Karuli Baba. His name is a different name. No one knows exactly the name he was born with. But the reason he's giving the name Neem Karuli is because at one point they were riding on a train. And back then, when India was governed by the British, you were not supposed to sit at the front of the train. <laughs> And when they stopped at a station, they wouldn't let the Indians come up to sit at the front. And so the train wouldn't start. And everyone thought it was a mechanical problem. They tried to look. No, they don't see no mechanical problems. And then people heard that's like, oh no, this Baba, that man over there, he's the one who made the train stop. And he will not let the train go until you allow everyone to sit at the front. And when that happened, the train started. At that point, he stayed and had a temple built there and got the name Neem Karuli Baba. So that's another story. <laughs> um, and yes, so this person, you can read about him, lots of different stories available for that <laughs> Krishna Das and Ram Das have their own stories of being with him Is and seeing one? things that for them would be magical but just recognizing that here was a person that really was that connected and could express the things that we read about like I just described from Patanjali go ahead see one of men Ramdas gave him ridiculous amounts of acid. Correct. Yes. <laughs> Correct. And what's he, the rest of that story? Do you know? Uh, well, it didn't really. He was like, "What's the what's the big deal?" <laughs> yes. He, so oh, okay. So we'll refine it so you have the story a little bit more clear. Ramdas was a man named Richard Halperin who was a professor in Harvard, working with Timothy Leary, doing experiments with acid, trying to understand it. Travels around India. The first time he gives Neem Karuli Baba the acid, he was shocked that nothing changed in the person. 
the second time happens with Krishna Das. The only reason the second time happens is because Nim Kaluli Baba gets a feeling because up until that point, so that's the first day that he meets Ram Nim Kaluli Baba, the very first time that he meets him, Nim Kaluli Baba asks him, Hey, you're going around giving this thing to people, give me. And he gives and nothing happens and then Ram Das comes home and he shares this story for a few years. But every time, but slowly as the years go and he shares the story, everyone is like, dude, he fooled you. You know, like, no, 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 no. Like, he, he, he fooled you. You like, he did something and you just didn't notice because the room was dark and, and all that. So he didn't really take it. You know, that's, so, yeah, nice story, dude, but no way, no way. You know, like, he fooled you. So now, a few years later, they're back in India and Krishna Das is there and so they're sitting together, the three of them, and suddenly Neem Koli Baba turns over to Ram Das and Ram Das still has it and every now and then they still kind of take it or use it and shit. So he's like, remember that yogi medicine you gave me the first time? And Ram Das takes him up and he's like, what? Oh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Now he's like, oh, yeah, I do remember. He's like, you have any more? <laughs> he's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so he goes, he brings some tablets, paper tablets. At the first time he gave him liquid, but the second time it's tablets. So he gives the tablets. And so Neem Kali Papa puts the tablets on the mouth, on his tongue, and he sticks his tongue out so that there would be no confusion. <laughs> and again, Krishna Das is there too, so I've heard the story also from Krishna Das. And again, nothing happens. The next day, when they sit with him, they ask, Baba, you know, how come, you know, what's up? Like, nothing happened to you. Can you give us some information? And this is what Neem Kaluli Baba said. He said, he was quiet for a little while, and then he says, this, this is good medicine because it can take you into the room where love exists. The room where Jesus lives. But the problem is that you can't stay there. The only way to stay is through meditation. But if you've never been in the room, then it's good to have an opportunity of seeing what's possible. Hence, Krishnadas talks about a question they asked Nimkoli Baba once about what, what is meditation? And Nimkaluli Baba again gets quiet for a while. And then Krishna again it's Krishna Das story, so I'm just sharing his. And then and then and then the tears go down his eyes. And he opens his eyes and he says, Meditation is the way Jesus could love. And Krishna Das is like, dude, really what? Like, what does that mean? Like, don't, don't, can you give me something I can do? You know, Jesus lost himself to love, to lose yourself in love. Notice how we used that word a few times today. But how can we really do that? Right? And especially for Krishna Das, he points out, dude, let me do like a thousand mantras of standing on one leg. I could do that. 
let me do 10,000 sun citations, I can do that. But, but what does it mean to lose oneself in love? Right? There's a place of love inside of us. Right. It's not that I'm loving me, but rather I am love, and so now I don't need that from you. And so David Data, again, just to give you a word, someone that, well, his work tends to focus on a certain way of how love is expressed through two people. But the point of is how do we learn to become mature to recognize how much closer we do have, both physical, so like, like, if you sit like that, and you say, oh, I'm love, it's like, dude, what are you talking about? You're all closed up. So the, the, the ways and how one can be aware of what, how your body is, what you're doing with your body, does it express a sense of love or not? <laughs> right? So the body can express that. Is that true? Right? People can walk in the room and <laughs> you could feel how their body is affecting the room. So through, and that's a moment by moment. I got to pay attention to that moment by moment. And how my breath is. And then how my thoughts are. And then he, he has a great way of putting these concepts of spirituality in practical format so that you could use them in your day-to-day -day life and not fool yourself that you're reading spiritual works and you are. And he's honest about his experience because he's like, dude, I used to meditate for hours, sit on the beach and meditate, be on all white and, and enter these states. And then came along a man and he was able to show me that I was very limited. <laughs> and how that was, that's his story, that's his path. But just the ability of realizing that we don't, see ourselves well. Hence, Mysore is a good space. We don't really see ourselves very good. And it's natural. Because you can't see your own eye. You will never see your own eye. You will only see a reflection of your eye. Someone else can see your eye. Someone else will always see you better. And so being able to have that truth, being able to allow that truth to be there, and whether because you're giving that truth to the person you're choosing to be with, so your partner, especially someone you're with for a while, they show you. And hence why we have words like, your partner is a mirror <laughs> to yourself. So whatever you don't like about your partner is probably something about you. <laughs> So work on that. And just because you're going to replace partners doesn't mean that <laughs> you're maturing. You're just replacing things. <laughs> that, that might be your path. That's a different subject. But will you be honest enough to notice those things? So I, I try to give you different individuals. Some of them are alive. Some of them are dead. So that because Svadhyaya, from the Niyamas, Svadhyaya is what Patanjali points out is one of the most important 
yoga in action. Patanjali in the second pada starts the pada with a very interesting sentence. Yoga in action. Ooh, interesting. First book he starts, yoga begins in the now. Weird. <laughs> what do you mean? <laughs> but the second part, yoga in action. It's like, ooh, I want yoga in action. And he says three things about yoga in action. Tapaha. Tapaha is, in my, in my years of reading and understanding, tapaha is best described as the fire of enthusiasm. Yes, some people will talk about tapahas as being the, the, all the different things you might do with your body and like, like the kriyas and stuff like that. But those are kriyas and those are different forms on how to cleanse. But the fire, when do we get fired up? How do we get fired up? It's enthusiasm. You get, you get fired up when you get excited about something, right? Right? And when you get excited about something, it's like all of a sudden you really are living on purpose. You feel like you're on purpose. Right? And everyone else around you also feels that about you. But enthusiasm tends to happen externally. I bought a ticket to go to India. Now I'm excited. <laughs> Asana practice is a beautiful space to get connected with enthusiasm. Going back to I'm tired today. I don't want to do practice. Well, I mean, okay. Is that enthusiasm? I did not say you had to do the asanas. Remember David Swenson. Maybe practice is rolling the mat and rolling the mat back up. But if I get up and I say, I'm tired today. I ate too much. I don't want to do practice. Well, there was no enthusiasm and there was no practice. <laughs> so enthusiasm and the asana is just, can I get up in the morning and get somewhat excited? I'm tired. I don't want to do this. No, I mean, we all feel that way. But then I get on the mat and I say my prayers and, oh, wow, now I'm, now I'm filled with some excitement, enthusiasm to see where I'll be. I'm not going to decide, right? I'm not going to decide today that I'm going to get to the end. I'm just going to get the excitement to inhale, get my arms up, <laughs> or get the excitement enough to roll the mat down and sit down, enthusiasm. How will I do that moment by moment? Right? Can I put that kind of a fire in me moment by moment? Yoga in action. Tapaha. Then Svadhyaya. Self-study. Self-study. Like what we're doing now. That's why I mentioned all these different people because then you can have different avenues. You don't have to go self-study Patanjali only. Lots of different avenues. Right? Lots of different ways. There was a woman poetess. Some people claim that there's only two words in Kashmir that are important. One of them is the word Allah, which means God. And the other word is Lala. In reminding of a poetess that lived in Kashmir about a thousand years ago. A woman poetess who is claimed that was walking around in Kashmir naked singing poetry. Here's one of her poems. I, Lala. I was once a reed. A reed is like a piece of grass. I, Lala. I was once a reed. But look, I blossomed. I became a lotus flower. 
So there's different people out there like Lala or Rumi, if you heard of Rumi, or Hafez, if you heard of him. These different individuals, even Wordsworth, had moments of epiphany in his poetry that could express that which we are seeking, which is, who am I? The place of love, of truth, and of peace. That discovered it. That realized that it's available to have in this realm. Svadhyaya is choosing to go read and study from them. Whether it's sitting with Neem Karuli Baba, like Ram Das and Krishna Das did. That's Svadhyaya, I'm sitting with you and you are the sunshine. So I'm sitting with the sunshine. Right? The light, I'm sitting with light. Now I know light. And when you're not here, it feels like it's darkness. <laughs> Svadhyaya. So Tapaha Svadhyaya. And the last one is Ishwara Pranidhanani. Yoga in action. These three, these three, Svadhyaya, um, Tapaha, Svadhyaya, Ishwara, Pranidhanani, are also the same last three elements of the Niyamas, which is the second aspect of Ashtanga. Yama, Niyama, Asana, Pranayama, Pratyahara, Dharana, Dhyana, Samadhi. Right? This is Ashtanga. Yama, Niyama, Asana, Pranayama, Pratyahara, Dharana, Dhyana, Samadhi, Ashta, Ashtanga, Yoga. Patanjali Sutra. The eight limbs. These are eight limbs. Sorry? Yes, I'm coming to that one. So, Ishwara Pranidhanani. Pranidhanani means have faith. Have faith. Ishwara, we have to break down for a moment. The word Ishwara is a word that was already existent within Patanjali's time period. The definition of it is that you may have heard of Shiva and Brahma and Vishnu and Saraswati and Ganesha and all the different forms of gods from Hinduism, right? The idea is that even though all these gods were still there and available, they're all recognizing that even us as divine forms came from one thing. And the one thing, the word, to give a word, the one thing is Ishwara. Does that make sense? And so, rather than using all these other forms that was existent in this time period, that are described in the Mahabharata or the Ramayana or the Vedas, rather than using those terminologies, Patanjali just simply encourages us to have faith that that oneness exists. Mm -hmm. Right? Like Namaste, there's only one of us. But if I don't really believe that there's one, there's not one, then, then I don't have yoga in action. I'm just doing stuff. Have faith that this Oneness is actual, not metaphysical, not esoteric, not thoughtful, but rather an experience that you can actually have. Hence, I touched on the idea that you've had moments that you felt that. And if you haven't, then I encourage you to pay attention to when you do have them, because especially people who do yoga and people who are traveling, you're offered many of those moments just because of the sake of taking yourself out of comfort zone and putting yourself in 
discomfort environment. Like when you're out in nature and for a moment you're realizing, wow, I'm not separate from this existence I'm watching. It might just be a glimpse. It tends to just be a quick glimpse, like this weird thought that goes, <laughs> right? Or to use David Ada, you've had moments where the only reason deep down in your heart, the reason you're wanting to be with someone is not just to not be alone. And if that's the reason, well, let's mature. <laughs> the reason I want to merge with someone is because there's a sense in me that you and I will become one. I mean, what's the sense of saying I love you when you're looking at someone's eyes? <laughs> if that's not really a feeling of I love you because I'm looking at you and I don't see a separateness between us. And that's why I love you. I might hate you tomorrow because you blew my car up. But, <laughs> but right now, for this moment, there's a quick moment that I'm seeing that you and I are one. And yes, we live in a world where sex is just sold and bought so easily. We, have, we forget that that's something, but I hope that in your lives you've had a moment like that. We had this conversation <laughs> yesterday. <laughs> right? Yeah. So, Patanjali uses Ishwara Pranidhanani. I used all these other words and experiences where we've had a moment that I was connected to something larger, that something larger, Patanjali uses Ishwara, and then you know that's available. Mm. How to get it day, moment by moment? Yoga in action. Mm. Yeah. That makes sense? Mm. And again, if you show up on the mat, then you develop Svadhyaya, uh, Tapahas. Because you got to have enthusiasm to do this stuff in the morning, <laughs> regularly. <laughs> right? And if you do it regularly, you end up questioning. Like, what, where does this word mean? <laughs> right? So then you want to have self-study. Today's easy, you know. Today you got Google. <laughs> you know. Today's self-study is a lot easier than 20 years ago when I found yoga, or 30 years ago when I found yoga through a book in the library. That I had to go search, and I wasn't even looking for a book on yoga, by the way. <laughs> or in, in the time of Patanjali, that in many ways, if you did not know he existed, you would never even have these questions or want to go be with him. And in my opinion, the Buddha, who does leave his family to go understand why is there suffering in the world and why is there life and death, leaves the family to find the answer. When he gets his answer, he makes it more available compared to Patanjali. You know, still eight limbs, eight sections in Buddhism, but it's a lot more easier to share than Patanjali's yoga. Right? Go do something for someone else. That's it. And to do something from someone else will require real truth. I'm doing it because I'm hoping you like me. Well, that's not doing it for someone else. That's doing it for you. <laughs> Truth. Right? And when you are doing something from, for someone else just for the sake of doing it, there's a beautiful revelation of a connection that we have. Right? 
And if you haven't, then as some people say, go feed homeless people. And discover. Most of us feed homeless people because we hope someone will take an Instagram picture and their friends like it. But <laughs> what a world. <laughs> but still, the idea there is, is nice because the Buddha, like Patanjali, they were both kind of social revolutionaries. It's just Patanjali is the social revolutionary that you have to know about. And the Buddha was really a social revolutionary that chose to try to help as many people as possible feel free, peace, and connected. How does that resonate with you all? Makes sense. Then I'll point out this last thing. When I went to India, I was surprisingly lucky in some many ways. And the most of it was the fact that at the end of my first month, I went to hang out with my Ayurvedic doctor. I met an Ayurvedic doctor. I mean, I knew about him because he was the teacher of my friend and teacher of a woman named Lisa Shrimp. And his name is Dr. Kumar. And he lives outside of Gokulam where we practice with Patabi Joyce. So I go every day and I kind of bug his brain a little bit and do some panchakarma and get oil massage and enjoy. Because in India, you do yoga at 6 in the morning, you're done at 8, and what else are you going to do for the rest of the day? <laughs> and so part of my day, I went to hang out with Dr. Kumar. And... I knew that on a Sunday afternoon he was going to do a talk about yoga and vegetarianism. And we're going to have free food. But it's Sunday. And like here we have the weekend off, over there in India we still practice, but it's lead practices. And so it's a weekend. And so I remember in my head that he told me about it and I was like, okay, cool. I see you every day anyway. And maybe I'll show up, i come in the morning, this is in the afternoon, you know, I don't know what I'm going to do on Sunday. And then Sunday came along and I was hanging out with a different friend that I met that month. And we're just driving around and we're feeling a little bored and it comes close to about five o'clock. And I was like, dude, we can go eat for free. <laughs> Let's go get free food. We have to sit at the lecture, but we go get free food. So we went to Dr. Kumar's place and there was a nice little potluck up on his rooftop and there was a, diff a bunch of different people that we knew because it's a big enough community there's about 600 people it's around December so it's this time of the year there's 600 people living in this neighborhood called Gokulam some of them practice with Sharad about 150 some of them practice with Saraswati about 75 but the majority, about 400 of us, we practice with Patabi Joyce in the morning. And that's where it's so dense and there's about 120 people. Like, and we start at 5.30 and then it's a rotation. And by, nine, by, by about 8.30, Patabi Joyce will leave. Shawat will take over and finish this group before he goes to his shala at about 9.30. And then he has his group and his shala. So there's a lot of people. For what reason? To hang out with... Patavi Joyce. So we're over and there's about 15, 20 people and some of them I know from Gokulam 
Some of them I know because I've seen them at his office and I know some of them are practicing with other teachers. They don't practice with Guruji. It's too expensive for them. Maybe one or two are practicing with Shishadri. One or two are practicing with... Um, there's an Ayangar man, BKS, BNS, BNS Ayangar, who also studied with Krishnamacharya. And, and, so, and so I know, just because I kind of went to visit and hung out, but I can't practice with them because you're not supposed to practice with other teachers. But I went to check out because people told me. And you ha have lunch with them or stuff like that. So we're having this nice dinner. At the end of dinner, Kumar is like, hey, come down to my office. And so we can start the talk. And we go down, we sit, there's about 20, 25 people, there's three chairs in front. I'm like, why is there three chairs? There's just one of you. You know, and Dr. Kumar's like, well, I'm sorry, we're not starting, we're waiting on some people. About 10 minutes later, in from the door, which is behind us, we're sitting here and behind, I'm looking, it's like, oh, wow, Patabi Joyce and Sharat. Boop, 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 come in, and three of them are sitting at chairs in front of us. Dr. Kumar will give a lecture about how there's nothing in Ayurveda scriptures about being a vegetarian. The connection between yoga and being a vegetarian is a made-up one. <laughs> and he gave different examples and stuff like that. And then Sharat gave a few words and talked. And then there was questions and answers. The very first question that was raised by someone from the back was raised to Patabi Joyce. And they asked, what is yoga? And Patabi Joyce didn't even hesitate and said, yoga is to find God, yoga chitta vritti nirodaha, tada drushtuhu svarupe vastanam. And I remember for me, that hit a serious chord. Because the very, very first book that I picked up from the library called the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali or the title is actually Dream of a Yogi the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali had in the English translation yoga is to find God which if you break it and think about it for a moment is a very powerful sentence in English it has nothing to do with your faith it has nothing to do with your belief it has to do with your action Either you do it or you don't. And if you do it, you'll find what you're seeking. But for me at the time, especially since I'm in India and I'm around a lot of practitioners at different levels and the conversations most of the time is, what series are you doing? And what series are you doing? Oh, you got this pose today. Oh, I can't believe you got that pose today. And all of a sudden it's like, wow, that's right. Yoga has nothing to do with that. Yoga has to do with this. And solidified for me that aspect is like, oh, that's right. That's why I came here and that's why, Patabi Joyce, you are my yoga teacher. Because you're reminding me and anyone who wants to listen what the real purpose of yoga is. Which is the same token. Some students went to the yoga teacher at the end of the class and they asked him, you know, it's weird. Every time we go to yoga, at the end of the class, they always bring their hands together at the end of the practice. Why? Why? What's up? What's the secret? Why do we always bring our hands together at the end of the practice? The teacher looked at them, smiled, and pointed out 
We bring our hands at the end of the practice to thank God it's over. And Osho, who was a very jokester, pointed out often, laughter is the language of the gods. When you truly laugh, like you are now, in that moment, it's a meditation moment. In that moment, in that moment of deep laughter, you're not really thinking and you are resting in that which you really are. And if you notice it, you'll appreciate it. So laugh heartily, laugh a lot. And I hope that this was valuable and enjoyable. So we'll bring our hands together. Thank God it's over. Thank God it's over. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and namaste. <laughs> namaste. <laughs>